Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew, and this week we will be talking about the risks of recession in the US economy, and I suppose by extension, the global economy too. And of course, this comes in the context of, uh, I think, growing perception that the Fed had fallen somewhat behind the curve in terms of dealing with underlying inflation pressure in the US. And that means that there is going to have to be quite a significant degree of monetary tightening over the next couple of years. And unfortunately, history is not replete with examples where the Fed has been able to pull off, or indeed other central banks have been able to pull off the kind of smooth landing where they're able to tighten policy just enough to bring inflation risk down, but not so much that they deliver a recession. Accidents happen quite a lot. And on top of that, we're facing a huge energy and oil price shock too, which has also been associated historically with elevated recession risk. So I think these risks of a US recession are very real and pressing and very important for investors to consider at the moment. And so I'm delighted to say we're joined today by James McCann, our Deputy Chief Economist, and Abigail Watt, our Research Economist, both of which based in the US to help us think through these issues. So guys, thanks so much for joining us today. So James, I think perhaps before we dive into sort of conversations around exactly where the US economy is right now, and how we might go about measuring and tracking recession risk, it would be helpful to take a step back and ask, I, I hesitate to say a more basic question, but potentially a more basic question of sort of, um, you know, why is it that these tend to be played with these sort of cyclical movements over time of booms and busts? Why do we sometimes have recessions? Thanks, Luke. And yeah, sounds like a simple question, but actually, I guess, I guess rather, rather complicated. Kondratiev, a, a Russian economist, was writing about this in, the, in a pretty seminal piece 100 years ago, and he spoke about waves of activity, so economic waves and you know, longer term cycles, in part centered around changes in, in technological process. Now, the thinking around business cycles has obviously emerged significantly since that point and developed you know, I think a stronger and more fundamental understanding, although there's you know, not full consensus on what the nature of the cycle looks like. But I think your point around you know, shocks is, is particularly important. A cycle can be running along and it can face any kind of shock, be it, you know, it's very, very topical at the moment, an energy price shock or another form of, of macroeconomic shock. And that can cause the cycle to reset. And that's a nice way of saying you, you go from growth, you go from expansion into recession. Now, what we do find is that there are points potentially along that cyclical path of which that cycle can be considered more vulnerable to those types of shock. And I think that's what's really important. And we'll probably get onto a little bit today when we're trying to predict how cycles evolve. So we know that as cycles age and mature, they can develop certain vulnerabilities or imbalances that make them more susceptible when these shocks do occur to going into, into downturns. In very simple terms, an economy can, can run out of kilter. So activity can, for a period of time, be running really in the red at a period where it's difficult to sustain, and that can create its own, its own pressure points in the economy. We can see financial imbalances build, and they too can introduce their own, their own vulnerabilities. So I think when we think around business cycles, we, we know that 
typically they end on account of shocks, but we also know that they end because of other features that have become inherent during that expansion. And I think you know, monitoring both of those are particularly important when we're trying to predict how business cycles might evolve and think, think about the future, the risk of recession. Yeah, and I think this point about aging and maturing is a very good one because, you know, as the cliche goes, business cycles don't die of old age, they tend to be killed. But it's also true that over time, sort of imbalances do tend to build up as you described there. And so time does have an important component in thinking about recession risks, which makes it quite surprising, I suppose, in some ways that we're talking recession risks at the moment, given, you know, it was just two years ago that the US suffered a world historical contraction in economic activity around the pandemic. So in some senses, we're sort of seemingly relatively fresh into this cycle, only two years on. So maybe, Abby, that's a good time to bring you in to talk sort of, you know, why is it that the pandemic recession was such that already we find ourselves once again talking about recessions at this point? Yeah, the, the pandemic recession was kind of unlike a traditional uh, business cycle downturn. Uh, we didn't necessarily see, you know, the eve of the crisis being characterized by buildups of kind of large scale macroeconomic or financial imbalances, which kind of James has already said is a, a kind of common driver of a kind of cyclical downturn. Um, the other thing that it makes it quite unique is the, the the speed with which the the kind of recession occurred and the the speed with which the recovery occurred, um, and both of those factors um, kind of lead us to believe that you know the next cycle will likely be shorter in length, um, and that's because of kind of two key reasons. The the first is that the before the pandemic related recession, we were seeing rising risks of recession in the US towards the end of 2019. We did see kind of yield curve inversion, some of those traditional signals of increasing recession risks um, arising. And it's not necessarily the case that the pandemic related recession would have unwound some of the imbalances that were already building in the US economy before that recession occurred. So the, the, that's because the kind of speed of the recovery was so much quicker in, in this downturn as well. Um, so that's the kind of two key reasons why this cycle might be slightly, I guess, might be shorter in, in length. Yeah, OK, I think that's that's well explained. And James, I suppose one of the things that we've talked about many times on this show is that the pandemic itself was associated with quite a large supply shock. And that has had inflationary consequences in terms of, you know, as the economy has opened up and demand has run against some of those supply constraints. And that's created a bit of the inflation environment I was talking about at the start. So maybe it'd be helpful if you could just sort of, again, paint that picture of sort of the inflation dynamics we're seeing and what that means for policy at this point in the cycle. Exactly. You know, I think when we spoke about imbalances to kick this conversation off, you could say that inflation is a critical symptom of, of a fundamental imbalance. This is a way that economies try and equilibrate again. The, the price mechanism is as strong and you know, clearly one which is closely followed, but a way of the economy trying to work out some of these stresses. And, you know, we think that this is a symptom, as you say, of an economy which has actually done much better than expected from a demand demand perspective. If we look at job growth, for instance, it's been incredibly robust through this cycle, and not just during those periods in which the economy was essentially being turned on and off during lockdown, since and through the recovery as well. So, Spending has been strong, labour demand has been strong, and that is interacted, we think, with 
you know, what's really been a, a series of supply shocks, some, some home baked here in, in the United States. So people not being willing or wanting to go back into the labor force that's contributed to a tighter labor market as well. And some being more international in, in nature. We obviously know that supply chains have been severely disrupted and the complex and, and integrated nature of those chains means that it's not so easy to get over small hiccups. And, you know, those we're still feeling the effects of, of those interruptions. And that's, translating alongside strong demand into incredible price increases for a range of durable goods. So, you know, absolutely, I think this, you know, this, the speed of the cycle that Abby flagged, we're seeing inflation sort of corroborate that because relatively early on, we're starting to see this, this classic symptom that you're starting to feel these pressures and, and an imbalance has been created in the economy. I guess the key now is that the Fed is, as you mentioned at the start, Luke, under pressure to catch up a little and adjust policy itself. And this speaks to your point that, you know, traditionally we talk about central banks killing the cycle. That might be a little bit unfair in some regards. It's certainly certainly probably true, though, that their adjustments are risky and uncertain. And, and certainly, you know, the Fed's attempt to engineer a soft landing is going to attempt to engineer a soft landing. But the risk that that policy adjustment is miscalibrated or just needs to be stronger and more forceful i think is is material so you know absolutely we're entering a tricky a tricky juncture at present so i think that sets the scene perfectly in a sort of a, a qualitative sense of the risks we're facing but abby i know that you've done a lot of work in thinking about you know how we can sort of take those qualitative insights and model them quantitatively how we can actually sense something a bit more precise about recession risks and track those through time. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, you know, how we think about modeling recession risks and trying to put a number on these considerations. Yeah, so in terms of how we would model recession risks, the first thing is you need to define what a recession actually is um, quantitatively. So um, in our models, we use the, the National Bureau of Economic Research's definition of, of recessionary periods in the US historically. Um, and the reason we use that definition is because they look at the kind of the depth, the diffusion, and um, also the duration of the slowdown in a number of economic indicators, rather than just focusing on kind of a more traditional definition of a recession, which might be two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. So we choose to use that measure because we think it's it's kind of slightly broader in its definition of what a recession actually is. Um, and then once we have that definition of, of recessions, um, we then have to think about series which might be correlated with the onset of recessions. And to do that, uh, we would kind of look back historically at, at the, the kind of recessions that have occurred in the US and try and think of the reasons why they might have occurred. So, for example, we've already touched upon kind of oil price shocks. So including variables such as the oil prices is kind of one way in which we would try and predict recessions. But also the, the other kind of more traditional um, measure, which would be the yield curve, is, is kind of a commonly followed harbinger of recessions as well. Um, and then we also would include kind of other measures of, of kind of activity um, across the economy as well. So um, we would include measures of kind of labour market tightness, um, as, as James has already alluded to, in terms of economic capacity. Are we seeing kind of a positive output gap? That's something that we would maybe include in the recession risk models. Um, and then also those kind of traditional imbalances. So things like 
household and corporate debt, um, looking at kind of housing market indicators, um, and then also financial market variables such as equity returns. So once we've collected kind of this, uh, these two key pieces of information, we have our definition of a recession, and then we have all of these variables that we think are correlated with the onset of a recession, then we would put those into a, a kind of quantitative framework and we would model uh, the impact of um, the changes that we're seeing in the kind of variables that are correlated with recessions on the kind of occurrence of recessions. Um, and when we do that, we can focus in on kind of single variable models. So we could say what's the basis of um, the you know, the probability of a, a recession on the basis of the yield curve alone, um, or we could look at multivariable models where we're saying if we combine the risks across all of these variables, what's the probability of a recession? Um, and when we're doing this, we we like to, to kind of look ahead. So we, we calibrate the models so that we are predicting the probability of a recession kind of within 12 or 24 months from the prediction date. Super. Before I um, I let you get to the punchline of, um, you know, what recession risks look like at the moment in the US, it might be worth just very quickly saying that you know, the yield curve is this, you know, this relationship between, you know, what governments borrow at a short term versus at a long term. And typically we expect this curve to be upward sloping. So borrowing longer in the future has a higher interest rate than borrowing short term. But then sort of as recession risks increase, it tends to be the case that that curve flattens and perhaps even inverts. So it costs more to borrow short term rather than long term. And this has been sort of historically quite a good leading um, indicator of recession risks for, for various reasons. So I just wanted just to explain to listeners um, what this yield curve concept was there. But as I say, why don't, why don't I let you now sort of get to the punchline of how we sort of using that quantitative framework think about recession risks at the moment at the minute on based on the kind of most recent data that we have um in the u.s economy um we're predicting that in the period out to kind of january 2023 recession risks are around 20 percent um but when you push that further out recession risks rise um up to around 30 percent um, and then because of the framework we use we can get an understanding as to which variables might be pushing that recession risk higher um, and when we when we look at that, it's interesting to see that things like weak vehicle sales, kind of softer consumer sentiment, and also rising oil prices are contributing to recession risks at the minute in the US. Um, it's it's natural that we would maybe expect some of these will improve in the coming months. So, for example, um, in terms of vehicle sales, these these numbers might start to to recover as we see kind of some of the supply chain disruptions easing in the auto sector. Um, in the coming months. Um, however, things like the, the kind of oil price signal have obviously worsened since we probably since we ran these models. Um, so that's one risk that, that we would flag in terms of possibly providing a higher risk of US recession going forward. Yeah, I mean, it, it's worth stressing that 25 to 30% recession risk over the next couple of years is elevated. And that feels quite scary as and, and as I said at the start, hence this sort of sense of this is an important pressing risk. So perhaps, James, maybe um, a good question on that note then is to ask you, I mean, what things could happen that would reduce that risk? Abby talked a little bit about some of the indicators that we would be looking at, but more structurally, given how things are set up in terms of Fed policy and the risks around inflation, what things are we looking for that would perhaps at a deeper level, you know, bring some of those risks down a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think 
you know, if we think one of the issues is the economy has, has slipped into you know, an imbalance, so there are imbalances which have emerged across important sectors and they're creating these nasty symptoms of inflation, I guess the really encouraging, a really encouraging sign would be if some of those imbalances would start to ease independent of, of some policy intervention. Now, we know a bunch of the imbalances relate to, to the COVID pandemic. We know there's been a big drop in labor force participation because people are less confident going into the workplace during a, during a global pandemic. It's possible that views on that change as vaccination rates uh, continue to, to gradually rise or as people get more used to it or as we make a transition from pandemic towards endemic living. So it's possible that that helps. You know, similarly, it's uncertain around when some of these stresses in global supply chains start to ease, but it's possible we get surprised to the upside there. And not just not just a, with, with, with the supply side improving, it's possible too that some of the demand for goods as you know, it's been very strong during the pandemic, starts to rotate back towards services. Again, this relates to the switch from, from pandemic to endemic living. People are more comfortable going to restaurants, going on, on holiday, et cetera. And so they spend less on durable goods and more on regular services. These are the sort of, I guess, release valves, which would, independent of policy intervention, start to really, really help out and moderate some of those inflationary pressures. And it would probably mean that the Fed would be less um, inclined or, or, or under less pressure at least to tighten as aggressively. And I think through that channel, you could see some of these recession risks start to start to ease somewhat. So you know, if this crisis has been a story of you know, relatively strong demand followed by disappointing supply, you know, one of the, the avenues to make this this imbalance less risky, I suppose, is an improvement in that, you know, in some of those supply side, and particularly as we sort of move out of the COVID pandemic. So that's something we're watching pretty closely. Okay, so I, I think the key takeaway there is that you know this is a, a pretty tight rope that the Fed has to walk across in terms of delivering this policy tightening, and anything that the supply side could do to help out, I think, would be very warmly welcomed at this point, both by investors and policymakers more generally. So I think that is all we have time for this week. So all that remains is for me to thank Abigail and James for joining us today and their excellent insights. And of course, to thank you guys for listening. Please do subscribe and like us on your favorite podcast platform. And we will speak to you again soon. Thanks very much. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.